you'd like to follow along this morning, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Took a break last week and served communion. What an amazing morning that was. Had a great time. Now we're back in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15. That's our text. We're going to see that the topic there is that Paul is twice driven out of cities when envious Jews cause the mob to be stirred up against him. Hence the title of our message, Mobsters. Get it? The mob was stirred, mobsters. It's a play on words with the word mobster, which is something out of my heritage. I embrace my heritage. I don't know about you, but... Beginning in verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded... And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Let's pray together. Father, be with us as we work through these verses. Uh, Help us, Lord, to see uh, everything that you want us to see today, Not, not to exhaust them by any means, not to learn everything there is to know about them, but to see in them and through them Jesus Christ magnified, present in our midst, ministering to our hearts. Talk to us, Lord, from this living Word of God. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. You got to love the Bereans. For centuries, they have had churches and bookstores and ministries and schools named after them. 
Pastors and Bible teachers frequently exhort their hearers to be like the Bereans in their approach to the Word of God. I remember as a young Christian, uh, one of the first things I had to look up in my Bible because people would say, hey, be a good Berean. And I thought, wow, what is that? And, And so it's a very common kind of understanding among Christians. I want to be a Berean, and I know so do you. What is it that set them apart from their Thessalonian counterparts? Well, there's a subtle but I believe significant clue in the way the two groups are compared and contrasted by Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts. Look first at the Thessalonians in verse 2. You're told that Paul reasoned with them for three Sabbaths. On three consecutive Saturdays, the apostle broke open the scriptures seeking to show them that the promised and prophesied Messiah had come and he was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Look next at the Bereans. Paul went into their synagogue. Immediately following his visit, we're told that they began to search the scriptures daily. They didn't wait until the following Sabbath to hear Paul again. I think Luke is drawing a contrast in how he's describing this. The Thessalonians, for the most part, were content to attend synagogue each Saturday and hear the word taught. The Bereans had a very different approach to the scriptures. They attended synagogue, but they were in God's word daily. It's not just a matter of daily Bible reading. In Thessalonia, they had what I would call a legal approach to God's word. They kept the Sabbath and the other outward forms of the law of God, but there's no indication they had a daily relationship with the Lord through his word. But in Berea, they had a living relationship with God's word, daily spending time in it, searching it, seeking for the Lord who is revealed in it. Legal or living, that's the contrast we get. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you won't be a Berean with a legal approach to God's word, but number two, you will be a Berean in a living relationship with God's word. So let's take a look first of all in verses one through nine, you won't be a Berean with a legal approach to God's word. We've said that Paul's missions strategy was to enter a city and to preach in one of its synagogues. Another aspect of his strategy is starting to emerge. He went to the largest city in each area first. Then he established a church. Then it was the mission of that church in that city to reach out with the gospel to outlying areas. God's strategy for reaching the world is always flexible. There isn't one single way of doing it. Depends on many factors. But one thing that never changes is God's desire that each local church be a missions-minded church that is reaching its own area and beyond as far as the Lord would lead. And so in verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Getting from Philippi to Thessalonica would take a minimum of three days, journeying a little more than 30 miles a day. They passed through the smaller towns with their sights set on reaching Thessalonica, which was a larger city of about 200,000 people. Verse 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you 
is the Christ. Now, it's always exciting to demonstrate from God's Word the fulfillment of types and prophecies. I remember as a young Christian, my absolute thrill at hearing some things explained to me that didn't really seem to make sense. Uh, I, I can still remember uh, being at Calvary Chapel of Lake Harrowhead and listening to Don McClure teach on Genesis chapter 22. We talked about the sacrifice of Isaac by his father, Abraham. And even as a young Christian, I thought, man, that's just weird. That's weird. We don't believe in human sacrifice. What's all that about? And then as Don began to draw out how that Abraham is a type of God the Father and Isaac a type of Jesus Christ, God the Son, how that there on that mount, just as Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, the angel stayed his hand and said to uh, Abraham that there was a ram caught in the thicket because earlier when Isaac said, here's the wood and here's everything we need, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb a prophecy that Jesus Christ would be the Isaac to come, would be the Lamb of God. And I still get excited here. I mean, wow, that's, God is neat thinking of that way back in Genesis, you know? And, and then maybe Paul went to other areas like Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 would have been a, an all-time favorite. Teaching through that psalm, which perfectly prefigured the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and then pointing out as a big close and Jesus quoted that to the audience that was crucifying him as if to say this is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so that's what Paul was about. And he was emphasizing in particular the suffering and death of the Messiah followed by his resurrection. Jews did not expect their coming Messiah to suffer and die. They were looking for a conquering Messiah. They were looking for a military Messiah. They were looking for a David, not so much the son of David who would die for them, but a David who would rally them and they would overthrow the Roman Empire. And so Paul picked out that particular theme in that area. And you know what? God, the Holy Spirit, he knows what people need to hear. I, I know what I want to say, but God knows what people need to hear. And I think sometimes we do need to pause when we're sharing with people or contemplating saying something to somebody and, and just shoot up a quick little Nehemiah prayer, you know, like, Lord, what should I tell this person? What is it that you want me to talk about? And let's go with that because you know the key that will unlock this person's heart. You know what it is they're struggling with. And so we want to remain sensitive to his leading to determine our emphasis when presenting Jesus Christ. This is why the Bible never gets old, never gets dull, never gets boring. You can never know all that there is to know about it. Every time we, uh, if we studied this same passage next week, the study would be different because God would draw out different aspects to emphasize. Now, Paul says, this Jesus, I like that. There's a whole study just in that, uh, those two words. It is our joy to reveal Jesus as he is presented in God's word. Nothing added, nothing removed. And so we want to, you know, we want, what does the Bible say about Jesus? How is he revealed in scripture? And this is harder than you might think because all of us have preconceptions, all of us have biases, all of us have prejudices. 
All of us have things that we think are true. Every Christmas, I like to obliterate and shatter the myths surrounding the Bible in Christmas. You'll have to wait. I'm not going to do it today. (laughs) The idea that there were three wise men comes from the fact that there were three gifts presented to Jesus, but the Bible never says how many wise men there were. We love to portray Mary traveling on a donkey to uh, Bethlehem, but the Bible never mentions the little donkey, and they probably didn't have a donkey because they were poor. And so a lot of these things we have developed over the years, and, and some things, I mean, you know, it's, uh, whether there were three wise men or 300, I mean, that's not, the, it's not a deal breaker, but sometimes we do read into a text our own cultural understanding, our own uh, social understanding, and it's, it can be very difficult to just take the Bible at face value, but that's what we need to do. When I preach Jesus, I'm talking about the Jesus in this Bible, not some Jesus that we've made up for ourselves or some phantom of a religious imagination, but I want to stick to the text. It says in verse 4, some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. It seems that most of those converted were Gentiles. When you read Paul's subsequent letters to the church at Thessalonica, it has a decidedly Gentile feel to it. Jews were converted, but mostly Gentiles. For example, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, I think it is, he says of them that they turned to God from idols. Well, that's something that wouldn't describe a Jew. Jews had nothing to do with idolatry by this time. And so for the most part, the Thessalonians who were being converted were Gentiles. And that's to say that the opposition about to form in verse 5 came mostly from non-believing Jews. And it says in verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace. I Just stop there for a minute. I, I just love that. It'd be like going down to the Hanford Mall and, and all of a sudden in the food court, there's a bunch of really wicked, evil guys just hanging around. Hey, you want some trouble? You come to the right place, you know? I mean, we're just not really familiar with this, and, uh, and it's just kind of weird, you know? They say, hey, what are we going to do? Let's go to the marketplace and get some of those evil guys that are waiting around to create riots. And so they go down there, they, and remember, these are the religious Jews. They gather a mob. They set all the city in an uproar, verse 5, and attack the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. What a great testimony of preaching the gospel. You're a person who's turned the world upside down. Actually, we like to say that we're making things right side up. The world is upside down. It's a crazy mixed up world, as Randy Stonehill sings. Everything's kind of out of whack. All you have to do is watch the news for a few minutes And if you don't get frustrated and discouraged and want to just throw a brick through the television, uh, then you're not paying attention because you think, man, this is such, this could be resolved. That's so simple. What's the problem with that? And people just, you know, everything is a debate now. Uh, I, I can't hardly watch Hannity and Combs. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I like Sean Hannity and I love that show, but it's like, they're just, they drive me crazy arguing these things, and and I know some of them are just making up stuff they don't even believe just for the sake of argument. Nobody could be that stupid. (laughs) And so we're here to set things right. 
The world is already upside down, but this is a great compliment. I, word to God that people would say of you that you, you're turning things upside down at work for Christ. And Jason has harbored them, verse 17, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now, out of envy, they stirred up a mob against the missionaries, and then they turn around and blame the riot on Paul. The missionaries were lodging at the home of one of those they had converted, a guy by the name of Jason. He and a few other brethren found themselves targets because of showing simple hospitality. We overuse an expression today. It's the expression flying under the radar. Probably you've used it today. Maybe not. But we hear it a lot. Somebody who wants to fly under the radar, not be noticed, just kind of get through without being noticed. Try as you might to fly under the devil's radar. Sooner or later, you are going to be a target of persecution, a target of reviling, a target of slander. Something is going to happen if anybody knows that you're a Christian. It's going to come. Verse 7, Jason has harbored them, and these are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus, and they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Now, one of the big things that a Roman ruler was in charge of in a city or a province was keeping the peace. Uh, you probably remember uh, from studying you know, ancient history, the famous Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Rome would come and they would conquer you, and under the iron foot of Rome, they would force a peace. They were trying to make the world a better place. And, uh, and so it, you had to keep the peace. And so when there was a riot in your city, that was not keeping the peace. And then add to that, they were twisting Paul's words around about the coming of Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth as if he was some revolutionary that wanted to overthrow Caesar right then and establish a new government. And so these were very big, serious charges that were leveled against these guys that could get the rulers of that city in a lot of trouble. By the way, it's interesting, and when you read First and Second Thessalonians, two of Paul's earliest letters written back to these people he had to leave behind, the major themes of those letters are the return of Jesus Christ to rapture the church, the second coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. It talks about the Antichrist and uh, all of these different things, which is to say that Paul, we don't know if he was there for three weeks or slightly longer, we'll talk about that in a minute, but he talked a lot about Bible prophecy. And he talked about it with brand new believers. And he established them in the looking for the Lord because he believed it was the blessed hope that people would have hope that Jesus was coming back for them imminently. And I would have to say that churches really need to emphasize the return of Jesus Christ. They should be talking about prophecy all the time. Paul did, the Bible does, we should. And so in verse 9, when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Apparently, Jason agreed, coerced, he was being coerced, but he agreed to convince Paul to leave the city. He guaranteed Paul would leave, and he posted a bond uh, saying that he could get Paul to leave. We don't know whether Paul was in agreement with this or whether it was his idea or whether he was led of the Holy Spirit. We just don't know. We just know that that's what happened. We do know that Paul honored it, and he believed that God was leading him on. 
Now, the mention of these three Sabbaths is taken by some scholars to mean that Paul was only in Thessalonica for about 21 days or less. But you can read other scholars who cite evidence in the Bible that he was there longer. Now, these are exciting arguments. They're thrilling arguments. You know, they should have public debates over things like this. Actually, they are fun if you're studying theology and you just, it, it, it helps to sharpen your mind and to see things and all that. But what I've learned about stuff like that is that if there's a bunch of smart guys who think Paul was only there for three weeks and a bunch of smart guys who think he was there longer and they haven't agreed for 2,000 years, then we probably aren't ever going to know and so it can't be the most important thing in the world that, you know, and so my conclusion is Luke isn't telling us that they, there were three Sabbaths just to give us a timeline. It's giving us a clue that something more is going on. He's saying these people were good Sabbath keepers. And every Sabbath, for three Sabbaths in a row, they came to listen to Paul. They heard God's word taught every Sabbath They were keeping the outward requirements of the law of Moses, but they were not searching the word to know God intimately. When Gentiles started getting saved, they had no qualms going down to the marketplace and gathering together a bunch of delinquent Gentiles and causing a riot to get rid of this new message so that they could get back to their Jewish life. Now, as Christians saved by grace through faith, we've never been under the law of Moses. People try to put us under it. They tell us you have to keep it and keep the Sabbath and eat certain foods and all of that, but we've never really been under it. Nevertheless, it is human nature to want to relate to God in a more legal way. We want rules and regulations. We want to know exactly what we can and cannot do. Either formally or informally, we make lists to guide us. We love job descriptions. And, and in some cases, you need a job description. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're getting hired for a job, you want a job description. You want to know what you can do, can't do, what you ought to do. But even within a job description, all of you have worked with deadbeats who barely live up to their job description Within your job description, there's a lot of stuff that you guys do that, you know, isn't really your job, but it helps things go smoother. It helps this guy over here. It's beyond that. And so, so, you know, but a lot of times we want a job description for God. God, what is it you want? What are the 10 things you want me to do? Uh, and what are the sub points there? I want to know what you want me to do because I feel comfortable when I have that description. The trouble is when I have that kind of a description, I live up to it and then fall back from it, and I never do anything more than that, and and it's really not the way God wants me to relate. Those of you who are married, you know, hopefully you're not getting together anymore and say, hey, what do you want me to do today? I don't know. What do you want me to do? Well, if you do the dishes, I'll mow the lawn, and then that'll be it, okay? (laughs) All right, fine. I mean, you know, it's just silly. Because we have a relationship with God that is not legal. It's based on love, and it's a living relationship. The church at Ephesus is always a good measure for us. If you read the letter Jesus dictated there and sent to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, he said, look, on paper, you guys are doing everything a church ought to be doing, and you're excelling at it. But guess what, guys? 
you've left your first love for me. And I'm going to cancel out everything else you're doing if you don't return to that place. I'll remove your testimony from the world. Not, they, they'll still be saved. He's not going to take away their salvation. He says, but you're, you're blowing it because there's more than a list of rules and regulations. The Thessalonian Jews are a warning to us to examine the nature of our walk with the Lord. Has it become too legal? If it has, then we need to be more Berean. Verses 10 through 15, you will be a Berean in a living relationship with God's word. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Berea was at least 60 miles away. The journey at least began at night, which was never a good time to travel. Uh, you know, dangerous, uh, just walking the roads, and then there was a peril of robbers and thieves, and so, uh, but God gave them traveling mercy. They arrived in Berea. Verse 11, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. The Bereans were more fair-minded. Some of your Bibles say they were more noble. Scholars struggle to define exactly what Luke meant. Some even go so far as to say that the Bereans were of a higher social or intellectual class than the Thessalonians. That, uh, you know, the... Uh, you know, that they were more of the highfalutin city folk and the Thessalonians were the country bumpkins. I think Luke defines for himself what he meant when after the comma it says, they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. You are noble and fair-minded if you approach the word ready to receive new insight about Jesus. You're not just in the word mechanically, but you're in it romantically, we would say. Now, by the way, there's also that strong exhortation here for us to be discerning of everything we hear taught from God's Word. While I'm drawing out more of this kind of personal, intimate understanding of what it means to be a Berean, let's not forget the exhortation that, hey, when I hear the Bible taught, I have an obligation to take what I've heard and think I've learned and judge it against what I know to be true from the Bible, the Bible itself, and to make sure that what I've heard is God's Word. Uh, and so each of us has that, uh, you know, discernment that we need to have. Uh, and, and so, you know, no matter how good the Bible teacher is and how accurate, there's always slight inaccuracies. All of us are fallible uh, at times. Uh, a good place... Not that it's, again, a deal breaker, but a lot of times Bible teachers, uh, we use examples that turn out not to be true. Uh, I've heard many famous examples that turn out not to be true. This famous scripture in the Old Testament says that uh, we will mount up on eagles' wings, and it talks about God's protection. And there's this fantastic, famous illustration and example of the mother eagle and her eaglets. And how high up in the eerie she will, in, in order to encourage them to fly, throw them out of the nest. And here's this little eaglet <laughs> screaming and plummeting to the earth from this incredible height. And just at the last minute, the mother eagle swoops underneath, catching the eaglet on her back, bringing her back to safety. 
mother eagles abandon their nests after a time. And just the laws of physics, terminal velocity would kill the mother eagle when the eaglet hit her. I mean, the eaglet would go right through her. <laughs> now, what is true, what is true is that in that part of the world, discussing the Exodus is where you find this scripture, there was a migration of birds that happened every season, including various species of eagles. And so God is talking about just as he is able to give birds the instinctive understanding of passing through that wilderness, he is just as able more so to lead his own people and to guide them through that wilderness. So the real illustration is better, but the other illustration is just hokum, as we would say. It's just a bunch of hooey. It doesn't work, you know, so be, you know, be, now, if you're, if your pastor or your Bible teacher gives you a poor illustration, he's not a heretic, he's not a cultist, he's just wrong, and uh, <laughs> he needs to be informed because nobody wants to be wrong uh, and give all these crazy, you know, things. So, the Thessalonians, uh, an example to us, the Bereans, a better example. Verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. The power to save was not in Paul's argument or his oratory. He simply explained the simple meaning of God's word. He read the word, he explained the word, he applied the word, just like we're doing this morning, and the Bible was the power of God unto salvation. Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. How did they hear about what was going on in Berea? We don't know, but I'd like to think that a Jew traveling to Thessalonica you know, they had business between the two cities. He goes down, uh, he'd gotten saved in Berea, goes down to Thessalonica, goes into the synagogue. People know him there. Hey, how you doing? Well, let me tell you how I'm doing. I met Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God. What are you talking about? Paul the Apostle is up preaching in Berea. And, and it just was blowing their minds. And these guys, these are hardcore opposers. And they say, hey, we're going, uh, you know, we're going to take the 60-mile trip and we're going to find another mob. Apparently, one of the easiest things to do in the ancient world was to find a mob. So, <laughs> I don't know, you know, this, this is like the gang problem that we have or what, you know, but, but they had mobs ready, you know, maybe guys hung around with a little sign, ready to mob or something, you know. They advertised themselves, we are ready to mob for you. Remember that Thessalonian uprising? That was us, you know, and we're the better mob, you know, and stuff. But there were guys that had nothing better to do than become a mob. And, uh, and so they incited them, and Paul got kicked out of another town. Now, it may not be a mob that is stirred up against you. It might be a person or several people. They might be family or friends or neighbors or co-workers. In fact, they're going to be because that's the only people you're around. It's hurtful but it should never be unexpected. If you want to be Berean in your approach to God's word, you must see God's word, first of all, as authoritative. And that means you believe it to be inspired, inerrant, and infallible. 
Inspired means God breathed. God superintended the human authors of Scripture so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error His revelation to man in the words of the original manuscripts. Inerrant. By this word, we mean that the Scriptures possess the quality of freedom from error. They are exempt from the liability to make a mistake, incapable of error. In all their teachings, they are in perfect accord with the truth. The word infallible is interesting because until about 1960, the word was used in the exact same way as the word inerrant. It was a synonym. In recent years, the word infallible has come to be used in a slightly weaker sense to teach that the Bible doesn't lead people astray even though it contains some factual errors. Now, here's what I think that means. Sometimes people say things, they're quoted in the Bible as saying something, and what they say isn't true, but it's true that they said it. Do you understand what I mean? And so the, the Bible is inerrant. There's no error. That's what Haman said he was going to do to the Jews in Esther's time, but it didn't come to pass because Haman was a lunatic. And so we talk about the Bible being infallible because people say, well, wait a minute, this, you know, this isn't true. Well, yeah, it's, it's what he said, and so it's infallible in that sense. But however you want to look at that, the authority of the Bible means that it's inspired, it's inerrant, and infallible, and that is your foundation, and that cannot ever be compromised in the slightest way. People are always battling for the Bible, trying to undermine the Bible. The minute you say something, anything in the Bible might not be authoritative and fit that criteria, who's to say? Who decides what parts of the Bible are authoritative and what parts aren't? It makes you the critic of God's Word rather than God's Word your uh, critic. And so that's the absolute foundation. But then to be a Berean, you need this additional understanding that the Bible is living, powerful. It's what it says in Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Some of you are familiar with the Amplified Bible. Do you know what that is? It's a different Bible translation that just takes the words and it gives you all the different possible nuances of meaning. And it's a great translation, by the way. We used to have a joke about the Amplified Bible. Bible teacher. I, I used to laugh at it, but I tried it a few years ago and nobody laughed, so I, I don't ever do it anymore. But uh, you used to say now, in, you'd read the verse and say now in the Amplified Bible and then you'd scream it, you know, because it's amplified. <laughs> yes, I knew it. I got more of a laugh from telling you it used to be funny than actually trying it. So anyway, can always salvage these old jokes. But in the Amplified Bible... It says, the word of God that speaks is alive and full of power, making it active and operative and energizing and effective. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing line of the breath of life, the soul, and the immortal spirit, and of the joints and marrow of the deepest parts of our nature, exposing and sifting and analyzing and judging the very thoughts and purposes of the heart. This is why no one memorizes the Amplified Bible, by the way. But it, it's, it, 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 there are other verses that speak of God's word as alive. Psalm 19, 7 through 9. Psalm 119, Romans 1, 6, 1 Peter 1, 23. All of those remind us that there is a living, vibrant, alive quality 
in our relationship with God through the Word of God. You and I are to approach the Bible as something that is alive. While you search it, it is searching you. A good Berean operates on both levels. He or she won't compromise the authority of the Bible, but never forget you are reading the Word in a living relationship with its author and its subject. Never become mechanical. Remain romantic as you approach the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thanks for these things. We appreciate the work that you were able to do in Thessalonica with those who were receptive to a living, intimate, personal relationship with the God of the universe. We thank you so much for the nobility of the Bereans and how that you've defined it for us as just people who understood that you were alive and revealing yourself through your word. And I pray, Lord, that if we have in any sense become Ephesian, if we're doing all the right things, listing things out, if we measure up on paper, but in our passion we have fallen short, that we would heed this exhortation that we find all over the Scripture to return to our first love for you and remember that you are a living, risen Savior, that you are alive, you want to speak to us. We're not just here to, to serve. We're not just here to do certain things. We're here to know you and be known by you and for you to walk with us on a daily basis. Renew and restore that to us, the joy of your salvation and of knowing you as alive. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. The guys are down here to pray with you. If you have anything going on in your life you require prayer for, some other need, come on down even now. Start coming down and, and uh, one of the guys will grab you. Uh, cafe is open. Uh, Wednesday morning, we'll be together with the men at 6.30 in the cafe for a devotional time. We're going through Romans 6, 7, and 8 in an in-depth way. If you can't make those studies, the text and the audio are both online. Uh, they're about 15, 20-minute studies that are taking a real close look at that. Wednesday night, Ignite is just a fabulous, fantastic time that we're having. We're going through Revelation in-depth. Uh, last week, I did Revelation 2.8. Uh, so we're really pressing through, you know. But uh, it's good stuff. Uh, Zach is teaching. Gino's teaching. Jake is teaching on Wednesday nights. Similar to what we did last Sunday with the communion service. Uh, so I, I know you'd like that. So even if you can't come every Wednesday, uh, come and check it out. Keep our troops in prayer. Keep our country in prayer. Keep the church in prayer. See what the Lord wants to do in using you to reach others at uh, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. God bless you.